Welcome to this episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to David McKenzie about his new book, King and Chaos, the Canadian General Election of 1935. While the election is not really well known, it proved very significant for Canada in a number of ways that we're going to delve into, and in some respects, we're still living with the consequences of it. David McKenzie is a professor of history at Toronto Metropolitan University. He specializes in modern Canadian history and the history of international relations and international organizations. He's written several books in these fields, including Inside the Atlantic Triangle, Canada and the Entrance of Newfoundland into Confederation, 1939 to 1949, A World Beyond Borders, An Introduction to the History of International Organizations, and he's also collaborated on two books on earlier Canadian elections with Patrice Dutille, his colleague at Toronto Metropolitan University. Embattled Nation, Canada's wartime election of 1917, and Canada 1911, the decisive election that shaped the country. David, many thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So why don't we begin uh, with some context, David, to, to set the stage for our discussion of the 1935 election. Listeners, of course, are going to remember that Canada was in the throes of the Great Depression. But remind us just how difficult things were in the country at the time. Well, Canada was in the middle of the, uh, well, it's called the Great Depression for a good reason, uh, in an unprecedented uh, economic uh, bad times uh, and uh, uh, widespread economic devastation. Uh, and a collapse of world trade at a time when the Canadian economy was particularly dependent on international trade. Canada's resource industries were at the heart of the Canadian economy, pulp and paper, newsprint, fish, wheat, uh, dairy products, and so on. And the international price for the, most of those goods uh, collapses in the 1930s. And so Canadians were very severely uh, hurt by it. They were dragged into it by the collapse of international trade was unlikely that they would get out of it until international trade revived. And so there was relatively little that they could do about it. Uh, and it was also a different country in those days in that there was no social security safety net or what was there was very limited. Uh, and so those who found themselves out of work, and at some points the unemployment rate uh, uh, su superseded 30% of the population, uh, they were in particularly bad, uh, bad shape. Uh, what relief there was was uh, small by modern standards. Uh, you have to prove need. Uh, you were expected to sell everything you had. So people were in very, very bad economic shape uh, throughout this period. By 1935, of course, uh, it had been going on for five years. And so it wasn't just a momentary blip anymore in, in the, uh, you know, a downturn in the economy. And so in 1930, 31, you know, the politicians could say, oh, you know, hang on, it'll get better tomorrow. You know, we'll balance the budget and things will improve. But after five years of it, people were saying something's structurally wrong with the economy. There's sort of a crisis of, of capitalism. And so people are beginning to look for much more, uh, you know, many different ways uh, of dealing with it or uh, for other solutions to what was going on at the time. And so you do see the rise of new ideas and, and new people and new parties and that sort of thing, all promising uh, a way out of the depression. 
Well, and in fact, on that note, Conservative Prime Minister R.B. Bennett had been elected in 1930, promising just those things, basically. He was promising to tackle the worst effects of the Depression, and he resoundingly defeated Liberal leader William Lyon Mackenzie. But when 1935 rolls around, there was no relief in sight, and the roles uh, were reversed. And it was Bennett who came under fire for the state of the country. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the two main protagonists? Uh, Both Bennett and King were interesting and in some respects idiosyncratic characters of a type that we might not expect in politics today. And they were really obviously central to what was going to happen in 1935. We probably wouldn't expect a similar kind to be in politics today. Uh, They were very different. There were some parallels. Uh, Both of them were childless uh, bachelors. Both of them were dedicated to politics, and that was their whole lives, and so they were, they were very focused in that respect. Both of them were fundamentally conservative, small-c conservative in their views about the Depression, about what was going to happen. Both of them, uh, you know, supported these ideas of, uh, uh, both of them, by, by 1935, both were in favor of trade deals, uh, getting some way to, to, especially a trade deal with the United States. But on the personality side, they were absolutely, uh, you know, miles apart. Uh, Bennett was a forthright, uh, volatile, uh, uh, decisive, a man of action. He, he took action often, sometimes you think, without thinking about it in advance. King was very much more private, much more cautious, hesitant, uh, where Bennett would make decisions immediately just off the top of his head. King would, would uh, you know, uh, stew over things and and think about things and avoid making decisions until the very, very end. Um, Bennett was also quick to anger, uh, whereas King was more of a smoldering kind of guy. Both of them resented people very quickly and very easily. Um, But uh, King was always playing a longer game than someone like Bennett. Bennett was more of a short-term kind of guy, whereas uh, King was... uh, uh, who played a, a much longer game when it came to, to political things. I think Mackenzie King was much more interested in issues like national unity than someone like Bennett was. Uh, I guess in, in, you could sort of say that uh, Bennett was an outsider and King was the ultimate insider. He knew everybody and was working the system from the inside. And of course, when you look back on them, you know, many years later, uh, King was the perennial winner and Bennett wasn't. Uh, and uh, King was the better politician at the, the very end. But there were other differences as well. I mean, you could go all the way down the line. McK- Mackenzie King was favored more autonomy for Canada in the world, whereas Bennett was much more of a pro-empire man. Uh, and there's a little bit of that comes out in the election campaign of 1935. Uh, but they were, they were opposites uh, when it came to uh, their personalities. Um, at the same time, though, there was a, an element of civility, I think, in Canadian politics uh, that's not there as much today, in that King and Bennett would meet each other regularly, and they talk regularly in, in the House of Commons, and King would regularly meet uh, with his political adversaries, and, and he, of course, he'd write about it in his diary, that's why so many of us know so much about it, probably more than we should know, uh, but he, that he would become, he became friends with uh, uh, his political enemies. He'd write nasty things about them in his diary, but he was much more civil about it, I think, in public. I had to smile in the book when I came across the photograph that you included of Bennett King uh, taken together, standing arm in arm. And I thought, wow, that's not something you see these days very often. Well, yes. At some point, you know, Bennett would even confide in King. You know, uh, he has very serious health problems at the beginning of 1935. 
And, and rather than keeping them quiet, uh, he in fact goes over to Mackenzie King and talking to my doctor said I shouldn't be here today. And, you know, I'm thinking of resigning and doing all this other kind of stuff. Uh, and so there was a there was a kind of a connection there, which I don't think is quite so common today. Not not that it doesn't happen today, but I don't think you see it quite so much anymore. So clearly, I mean, no surprise, the major issue of the election in 1935 was how best to combat the crisis that the country found itself in. How did the liberals and conservatives plan to address this and how did they approach the campaign generally? Uh, what were some of the strategies that they intended on employing? Well, as far as the, the campaign goes, um, the conservatives, uh, they rested on their traditional conservative views and, uh, and ideas and sort of, sort of battened down the hatches, balanced the budget, trying to get a new trade deal. I mean, you, t- you mentioned Bennett in 1930. He promised to blast his way into the markets of the world. And that really meant he was going to raise tariffs. And this was traditional conservative policy of protection, uh, protecting the Canadian economy. Uh, and that fell into disre- disrepute as the, as the years went on, because it clearly didn't work. And if, if anything, it made things worse. And so by 1935, both of the major parties were coming on side for a trade agreement with the United States to lower tariffs, which makes 1935 different than virtually every other election going back to the 1870s, where you had a clear protection of the conservatives versus freer trade for the liberals. Uh, By 1935, both are on side for freer trade. And that is something that becomes permanent, you know, it accelerates really in the Second World War. And then you have the GATT and other kind of trading agreements after the war. The old ways of protection are largely done. Otherwise, though, you have very traditional views in both parties, especially among the leaders. Uh, You know, both said, well, we'll we'll wait, we'll balance the budget and we'll see things through. Uh, We'll keep the provinces from going belly up or going bankrupt. Uh, If you're really desperate, we'll provide a certain amount of relief uh, for the, the provinces for so they can hand out to individuals and then we'll just wade it through uh, and uh, that be, is really the main policy for both parties and then the, in 1935 things change a little bit in advance of the election uh, and that's when Bennett introduces what becomes known as the Bennett New Deal uh, which is a series of, of reforms that he's promising uh, to introduce uh, minimum wage uh, wages and limit working hours uh, workman's compensation, a number of other things uh, that uh, may have been and it turned out to be outside the jurisdiction of the federal government. But in 1935, the, the Conservatives do move more towards a, what you'd call a reform agenda uh, for the, the election of 1935. One of the other issues that became major in the election was one of law and order and how it was perceived by the two major parties. And it, it tended to circle around the issue of what was known as uh, Section 98 of the Criminal Code. It was a, uh, Section 98 was introduced back in 1919 in the turmoil of the aftermath of the First World War, which made it illegal to uh, act on or even to advocate the violent overthrow of the government. Uh, and so anything revolutionary or was deemed revolutionary could be seen as illegal. It was really aimed at communists a way of dealing with communists. If you advocate the violent overthrow of the government, you could be arrested. And in the 1930s, some communists had been arrested and put in jail under Section 98. 
the Liberals and the newer party, the CCF, which we might talk about in a minute, both came out calling for the repeal of Section 98. Uh, and the Conservatives made that into a major issue in the campaign because Bennett said, we stand for law and order. We don't want revolutionaries and communists running around. Uh, and so that we will be that kind of tough on crime and support Section 98. So that becomes one of the main dividing issues during that uh, election, during the election campaign. When you look at the Liberals, they were traditionally the party of freer trade, and they maintained that in the election. They claimed they will get a better trade deal with the United States. They also offered a number of other things, most of which were pretty vague, vague enough that they could mean virtually anything to anybody. You know, that they would work towards social reform, they would study unemployment insurance, they would take action to, you know, do certain things without specifically promising uh, to do anything specific. They would work to maintain responsible government, the authority of parliament. Uh, and so the, there was a number of things that they mentioned they would do, but really didn't amount to very much. In fact, Mackenzie King uh, said very clearly to his caucus, he said, I'm not going to introduce any isms whatsoever. I'm not going to do anything like that. Why should we do something when the government is falling apart? Uh, the, uh, the, the election is being handed up to us like room service. Why should we bother taking a chance? He had many younger liberals. Uh, there was a whole new generation of liberals coming in who, who wanted a more dynamic program, you know, pump priming the economy, taking a, you know, unemployment insurance, social reform and that sort of thing. And King was just, uh, no, we're not going to talk about anything like that. So he was basically content to allow events to unfold before him, I guess you could say. Yes. He kept on saying, you know, uh, oppositions don't win elections. Government lose, governments lose elections. And he had good reason, too. He had been, we've had five years of depression, and the conservatives were going to own it. They'd been in office for five years and had done relatively little to solve the problems of the depression. You had a conservative government collapse in British Columbia and a liberal government's introduced under Duff Petulo. You have the liberal government being elected in Saskatchewan in, uh, in 1934. The, the progressives in Manitoba made an alliance with the liberals before the 1935 election. In Ontario, you have the election of Mitch Hepburn, uh, a liberal. In all three maritime provinces, liberals are, 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 are victorious in provincial elections. So one after another, and, of course, in Quebec, you'd had a, a, a provincial liberal government going back, I think, to 1897. So all across the country, liberals were winning everywhere. Virtually every by-election that was held before 1935 was won by the liberals. So King's looking at it. He says, we don't need to do anything. And, of course, we haven't spoken about it yet. The Conservative Party is breaking apart while it's happening. So we'll get to that, David, but I wanted to go back to something that you touched on while you were speaking, which, uh, which I think is one of the other important changes that you speak about in your book. You know, given the hardship that Canadians were experiencing, uh, many were looking for solutions in different places and became a little bit aggravated with the two mainstream parties. And you point out that the 1935 election marked the point when three major third parties emerged to break what essentially had been to that point a monopoly on the part of the Conservatives and the Liberals. Tell us about the third parties that uh, that came out in 1935. Yes, there, there are three of them. Uh, one comes from within the Conservative Party, and two others are, are new parties. Uh, they span the political spectrum, although in 1935 you could be excused for thinking that all three of them were radical parties, uh, but many uh, two of them were fairly conservative in nature. Uh, the major one, of course, the one that's uh, been maintained since then, was the uh, CCF 
which is created in 1932, and uh, uh, it was a socialist party, a Canadian socialist, a sort of, a sort of socialism with soft edges, uh, socialism in which they try to appeal to rural voters as well, which was a hard sell in many ways. But they specifically they had the Regina Manifesto, which very clearly says we are going to replace capitalism with socialism. So it's a very clear policy that they have. And they talked about the nationalization of banks and the railways and uh, I think the utility companies. Uh, I think at one point, uh, J.S. Woodsworth, the leader, said we're not going to nationalize all business, but we're going to nationalize bad business, uh, which I'm not exactly sure what that was. But they c called for a lot of government planning, government regulation. They also supported the abolition of Section 98 uh, for health insurance, social welfare, uh, and one of the other issues that's sort of lingering there in the background, of course, is whether all of these social welfare uh, proposals were constitutional for the federal government. It's really in provincial power jurisdiction. Uh, and so the CCF called for the amendment of the British North America Act, the Constitution, uh, to give the federal government more power over those kinds of things. Uh, and it, it comes out in 1932. It, 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 it absorbs some of the older progressives and uh, other labor candidates uh, in the parliament and some of the United Farmers of Alberta. And so they had something like 15 seats uh, when that, once they, when they were created in 1932, uh, many of them in Alberta. And so they became a viable party pretty quickly. Uh, they certainly had national ambitions uh, and the goal was to establish a full-time government in waiting. It, it doesn't turn out that way in the 1935 election because ultimately they, they don't run enough candidates to win an election. Uh, so the, the, the chances, of them, uh, it was impossible for them to win the election as it turns out. But their goal was to uh, essentially become a, a standing major party uh, in the future. Um, one of the other ones was the Social Credit Party, which arrives provincially. And so whether they even had national ambitions, it's, it's, it's hard to say in 1935. Uh, social credit was on the other side of the political spectrum in many ways. It was led by William Aberhart, who had been, a, you know, in the had his own Bible school and radio program in Alberta. They pick up on these ideas about social credit, which is really a way of, of manipulating the money supply to get money in, in circulating in the economy. Which many people thought that's the answer to the depression. Especially it was for people who were looking for a non-socialist answer to the depression. We don't want to nationalize things. I like private property. I like all that stuff. But we need to get money out there. We need to get money circulating. Uh, and that's really what social credit was. It was a social credit dividend of just handing out money uh, to people that they would then spend and buy shoes and create jobs. And, and then you get money circulating back in the economy. Because the real problem in the depression was not what we're familiar with, which is inflation. It was deflation. That prices were going down and down. They had a number of other things beyond that. They talked about health, health insurance or education reform. Uh, they talked about a lot of. Uh, it was very much a rural-based party, and they talked about financial help for uh, farmers, uh, and so uh, and controlling uh, the money supply and uh, that kind of thing. But they were, and they had both. Social credit and CCF were very radical in their rhetoric. Uh, and that re radical rhetoric appealed to people who were desperate. So it, in many ways, they were fighting for the same voters, you know, people who, you know, who were, 
felt that they had been done uh, badly by the big shots and the financial interests, you know, and, and so they talk about the bankers and the and people like Bennett, you know, who was the epitome of a sort of, I keep thinking of it as like the, the guy on the, on the you know, get out of jail free card, you know, in Monopoly. He, yeah, that's a typical look of that plutocrat of the 1930s. Uh, and he was the, the, the problem. Um, but social credit arose in Alberta. Uh, and it, they won the election in Alberta, swept the province, but that was just weeks before the calling of the federal election. So they had very little time to turn a provincial movement into a, a national one. They were helped in Alberta and that everyone was talking about social credit long before the, uh, the federal election in October. So it helped them there, but it didn't help them spread across the country. And so social credit doesn't run candidates other than Alberta, some in Saskatchewan and a few in British Columbia. So they're not even have no pretensions of forming a government or going on a national basis. And I wonder, I don't know for sure, but I, I never got the idea that Eberhardt, the premier of Alberta, really wanted to be a national government or a national party. I think in 1935, what he really wanted was to get a Saskatchewan social credit party, you know, and maybe move from there afterwards. But in 1935, I don't, I don't see it happening. So it's interesting, David, you've pointed out that two of the parties, social credit and the CCF, emerge out of Western Canada. And is it fair to say that the 1935 election really marked the emergence of a distinctive Western Canadian political culture? First off, I'd say I think no. Uh, I think that you could argue that Western Canada already had a distinctive political culture by 1935. You have the long, long history of radical parties, progressives, par progressive party, United Farmers of Alberta, Manitoba. Uh, Alberta had already turned into kind of like a one-party province by, by 1935, you know, and like the United Farmers of Alberta, they just sort of dissolve in 1935 and just turn turned into social credit and just like social credit dissolves in 1968 into a conservative party it just it's, it's like there's been one party there uh, always uh, so I, I don't think you could say that it, it, it's 1935 is that sort of turning point in that respect uh, but it is important in the sense that by, in 1935 western canada now has more all of western canada including british columbia has more seats than quebec does and this was new you go back to, you mentioned 1917, 1911, uh, the West had very few seats. And so elections were not determined in Western Canada at all. But in 1935, it, it makes a big difference. Uh, and on top of that, the world had changed by 1935. And the things that Westerners were interested in, or at least politically, uh, that had been so much a part of election campaigns was no longer true anymore in 1935. It was always about the, the tariff tariff policy and freight rates. It was the conservative uh, national policy, the developing of the country with a national policy tariff, the building of railways and Western settlement. Well, that had changed by 1935. You could even argue it was still there in 1930, but 1935, it's largely gone. By 1935, the West is settled. There's no more talking about Western settlement. In fact, it's backing up and people are being deported. The argument is not bring in more people, it's stop people from coming in and, and get people out. So that's not no longer the issue. I mentioned earlier about protection. That was traditional, that was the issue down out in Western Canada in 1911, it was the tariff. And even with the progressives 
a, a Western political party that emerges in the 1920s, the liberals dealt with it by tinkering with the tariff, lower the tariff and make the Westerners a little bit happier. Well, that's no longer an issue now. And by 1935, both parties, the major parties, are, are calling for lower tariffs. Uh, and, so, and railways was still an issue, but the issues, uh, there were new issues that uh, in Western Canada that were seen as more important. It was now it was dealing with social reform and government regulation of the banks. Uh, and so much less of an interest in those old issues. And in fact, as it turns out, in many ways, those old issues never come back. The West is looking at different issues. Uh, and increasingly, they see the older parties as representing that older, uh, older, uh, older Canada. Uh, and that they were increasingly the parties of central Canada who, who looked after their own interests. And so you do see in the Western Canada turning to these newer parties like the CCF and social credit. Uh, and so in one, of the, one of the ways, it is a kind of a new political culture in a sense, in that there are new issues. Uh, Western power has, a, has arisen. It has an impact on the old national policy. Uh, it's, that national policy is largely over now, and they're looking for new policies for the future. Uh, and they're forced to deal with the priorities of a, a modern industrial society. Uh, and so that does make a change in Western Canada. I mean, if, uh, if you want to talk about the legacy of this as well, which we might get to, uh, I think there's an element of a change there in the West as well. well. I'd also like to touch on the means through which the parties got their messages out. You write in the book that radio broadcasts really came into their own during the campaign. I mean, Prime Minister Bennett did a whole series of radio broadcasts related to his New Deal, which you touched on. How important do you think these efforts were to the outcome in terms of radio broadcasting? Radio really came into its own in 1935, the federal election. Uh, by that time, I mean, there was, they used radio earlier on in early elections and certainly in provincial elections as well. But it's one time when all, when all of a sudden everybody just about had radios by, the, by 1935. And if you didn't have a radio, you knew someone who had a radio. And you mentioned the Bennett New Deal uh, he did broadcast it. He, they tied together a series of radio stations across the country. So it was essentially a, a national broadcast. And people listened to it. Uh, and they had Bennett parties where people would gather together around the radio and, and listen to it. And so, yes, it really comes into its own. It's used effectively by uh, both parties. Uh, there was no government support for political broadcast. So you had to pay for it yourself. That favored the liberals and the conservatives. Uh, the Reconstruction Party, which I haven't spoken about yet, but uh, didn't earn, didn't raise very much money, uh, and they had enough for one national broadcast. And but the other, the major parties did have uh, use these uh, national broadcasts uh, much more effectively. They used political advertising on radio uh, very effectively. Um, at the end of the day, did it make any difference? I don't think it really did. You know, you got to know your candidates more. You got to hear their voices, uh, and that made a difference. Um, and so you can you can see all kinds of changes that comes along with it. But did it make a difference to the outcome of the election? I can't imagine that it did. Really, we're talking about the emergence and and the coming of age of a new technology, but without a decisive impact on the outcome of the election. Yes, I don't think it was decisive. I think it, uh, it worked. I think to the liberal advantage. Uh, the one party that had nine or eight provincial premiers who were liberal was the Liberal Party. Uh, and so they could band together, and they did this quite often, 
uh, where you would broadcast from a particular city and bring all the candidates together. Uh, they were the one they, at the near the end of the campaign. They took uh, they rented out uh, Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, uh, and they broadcast uh, all the other premiers uh, from their home provinces into Maple Leaf Gardens for the first time at a kind of a national phone-in show. Uh, and that was a, a spectacular achievement. And so if anything, it re just reinforced, you know, the, the leaders. And, and uh, uh, I don't think it was decisive, but it, it only helped the Liberals, I think, at the end of the day. Well, and in fact, that's a perfect segue to the next question that I wanted to ask, which was, I mean, you, you alluded to this earlier. R.B. Bennett, the prime minister, had some health issues. He had a lot of personal unpopularity. The liberal provincial governments that you just referred to were aligned against him. And he also had the defection of a party stalwart, H.H. Stevens, that he had to deal with. And Stevens was the force behind the Reconstruction Party. And even King felt that a liberal sweep in the election was inevitable. So was defeat in, in this context unavoidable for the Conservatives? I can't say inevitable. I can't say how could it possibly have turned out any other way. It's hard to imagine. Uh, all... Everything was in, going in favor of the Liberals in 1935, some of the things I've already talked about. Um, uh, and they ultimately do win the biggest majority uh, in Canadian history up until that time. You can't look at what the Conservatives were, were doing uh, and say that it would have turned out any kind of differently. You do have the uh, splitting apart of the party. And it was a fundamental split uh, between the sort of the the more established financial interests, the old school conservatives, and sort of the a newer generation of sort of smaller retailers and the, the man on the street kind of thing. Uh, and that really was going to eat into conservative voters. Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine anything else happening there. Uh, you have to look at R.B. Bennett and his personality. Uh, and it's uh, again, it, it works into that way of sort of saying this was inevitable. The way that he'd left the party organization atrophy, uh, he had lost and was going to lose. You know, about half of his cabinet were resigning and retiring, and looking for Senate seats and that sort of thing. Uh, and so, when you look at all of that kind of stuff, added to the what we talked about already with you know, the liberal resurgence, you have to give some credit to Mackenzie King for organizing it and getting it playing it, you know, uh, properly. Uh, and, of course, when you look at the, the actual vote, the Liberals were helped by the first-past-the-post system, you know, where they won a huge number of seats, even though they didn't win that much in terms of uh, popular vote. So you look at all those factors and you say, yeah, it was inevitable. You know, there was no way that the Conservatives were going to be able to, to come back from that. I just wouldn't say 100% for sure, though. And, you know, you look at, had he... Had Bennett not faced his health problems, he had a heart attack at the beginning of the year. It was out of commission for weeks on end, you know, and everyone was waiting for this election to be called. If he had stayed healthy, uh, and it's interesting to speculate, had he then been able to call an election in the spring of 1935, rather than waiting till October, he could have avoided the split with the Reconstruction Party. And he might have been able to campaign on the, the issues that he introduced with his New Deal. He introduces the New Deal in January. And the thinking was, is that he then lead it into an election campaign, and he'd be running on these social reform policies rather than on his record. And that was the thinking. But he got sick. 
He gets sick a few weeks later and then has a heart attack in February. He's out of commission until April. And then he has to go overseas for the coronation of the king. So he's out, out of the country until May. So he's off the scene. People, you know, just everything just gets hung up. Uh, the election gets delayed. But had he been able to go to, to the people uh, in January or February before the split with the Reconstructionists and run on the social welfare policies of the New Deal, which were very popular, not only, I mean, within his party, there were some who opposed it, but a lot of the, a lot of the people in the Conservative Party thought it was a good idea. You know, we can win on this. It might have turned out differently. You know, and we might be looking at a very different uh, situation after 1935 than the one that we got. So I can't say 100%. The long answer to a simple question. So yeah, it was pretty well inevitable, inevitable but it, not completely. We're then left with a 1935 election that was a major victory for the Liberals. But as you point out, ultimately a function of a divided electorate that uh, splintered the vote. And towards the end of the book, you write that given the economic disaster, the social turmoil, and the suffering and privation of the early 1930s, Canadians re-elected Mackenzie King and the Liberals on a platform that offered surprising little, little that was new. And that speaks to the point you made about Mackenzie King saying, listen, don't come suggesting any new policies. But what should we make of this? Well, for one thing, I think I've mentioned the first past the post system. Uh, the liberal vote declined in 1935. So people did not turn to the liberals in, in overwhelming numbers. Uh, it went up a little bit in the Maritimes and just slightly in Quebec. Uh, it did go up in Ontario. Uh, but the liberal vote declines in Western Canada in 1935. So they win a huge number of seats because they would often have three or four candidates in each of the rides. There were more people running in 1935 than ever before in Canadian elections. 245 seats and there were 891 candidates. Some riding, like the riding of Verdun in Quebec had 10 candidates in it. So it was a common to have four or five. We now had four, uh, you know, five major parties in Western Canada. Of course, they didn't run everywhere, uh, each of the parties. So the, the vote was split. All the way down the line, it was the Liberals that benefited from that. Their vote doesn't change. It goes down a little bit, uh, but it drops in Western Canada, but they still managed to win a lot of seats. So that's one of the, one of the things that, that really makes a difference there. And uh, another thing is that the, I think it's, it reminds us that there's a lot of radicalism in the Depression in Canada in the 1930s and a lot of radical rhetoric. But you look at some of the people who make these radical statements, and they're very conservative. You know, like Mitch Hepburn in Ontario, who made these radical statements of things, you know, and it sounds almost like they're revolutionary, but they're not. They're really very conservative. Uh, and so it's a reminder that this Canadians didn't turn to communism in 1935 or even socialism. You know, 90 percent of the voters voted for more conservative parties. Uh, and, and the beneficiary of that, of course, was Mackenzie King. Uh, and so, again, it's a reminder, I think, that that the radicalism was not one of a left-wing or socialist nature. It was a much more of a conservative radicalism. It was, it was like social credit. Uh, we're talking about the Reconstructionists. They were very, very, a very conservative group. Uh, and they're, they're, they, they talked radical, and they talked revolution, and you know, turning the system over, and bringing down the big shots. And you know, some of the things they said were wild. Uh, but they were at heart, when you scratch the surface, they were very conservative. And I think that's one thing that you can take away from this is that Canadians didn't turn to 
you know, left-wing radicalism. If anything, they were moving to right-wing radicalism. Uh, and there was safe Mackenzie King. You know, it's, a, it's one, of, one that's left, you know, historians scratching their heads, you know, forever. Is How did this guy win over and over again? You know, and it says he always comes out, you know, and so and, and in this one, he does. He offers practically other than the kinds of basic he, he did. They did offer. And this is important. He said the liberals were the only party that could form a national government. And they were right. Uh, there was a lot of talk in 1934, 1935 about forming a national government kind of like what they do in the, in the United Kingdom. You know, get the parties together. It's a crisis, uh, a crisis in our society. Let's form a single government uh, and have a, a national government. And King, of course, opposed, opposed it because he didn't have to because he was going to win the election. Uh, but they ran on that idea that we are the only party that can form or have any hope of forming a national government. CCF isn't running enough candidates to form a government. Social credit's not going anywhere outside of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, even the Reconstructionists, they, they had more candidates, although they didn't run very many in Alberta and Saskatchewan, but it was very unlikely that they would win. The Conservatives aren't going to win. They're split in two. The only party that could form a government based on all the different regions, uh, based on French and English, you know, win in Quebec. The Liberals are going to sweep Quebec, and they do, uh, almost. Uh, the, so the only party that could form a national government was the Liberals, and King emphasized that. And he emphasized, of course, by bringing the provincial premiers uh, to every, you know, every time he traveled and they'd be there uh, and they'd group together and they'd uh, campaign together. So there was that. I, mean, I think that is, uh, that is an, important, an, an important aspect of their campaign. Looking back now, looking back at the 1935 general election, how do you, how do you feel it ultimately shaped the Canadian political landscape? What are the things that you see that emerged that have perhaps to an extent remained with us today? I'd have to go back to sort of thing, one of the things you mentioned at the beginning is that the, the old two-party system is broken forever. Uh, the CCF, of course, morphs into the NDP, and we've had three parties ever since all three with, uh, again, pretensions for uh, national government. Uh, I think it's also the beginning of the end. I don't want to put, I want to credit it with too much importance, but it's the beginning of the, of the end of what you call inactive government. Right up until 1935, governments, liberal and conservative, it was always, you know, rely on balanced budgets, battening down the hatches, uh, wait till things get better. Uh, and government really stayed out of people's lives. After 1935, you, know, you have more and more of these, if you think of the, the platforms of the various uh, 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 parties, it was calling for much more active government, getting involved, and everyone was talking about unemployment insurance either promising it or talking about looking into it, which is what the Liberals do. They set up a national commission to look into unemployment insurance. So I think you can sort of see it doesn't really start in 1935, but it's like, like the, the genie is out of the bottle in 1935. We're not going back to those old ways. From now on, government is going to play a bigger role uh, in our intervening, intervening the economy, regulating the economy, maybe providing welfare services. And you do get unemployment insurance a few years later and then the baby bonus and other kinds of things, the social welfare system. Um, again, it doesn't start in 1935, but I think it, it's the kind of a turning point there as well. Um, it also, I think, is a, I referred to this earlier, about the ending of the old national policy, you know, of uh, high tariffs and Western settlement uh, and, and railways. And that, 
is gone after the Depression, thanks to the Depression and after the 1935 election. And I think both parties, major parties, have to find new ways to appeal to uh, the Canadian population. And I think they do. Uh, that is a, a, another permanent change. I mean, for the Conservatives, it, they go into the wilderness for a generation. You know, they're old. The, the policies of John A. Macdonald are no longer going to apply in Depression-era Canada. And they have to find, find new ways uh, to be a Conservative. Also, I, just as an aside, I mean, another issue was about the empire. And, of course, we had the Statute of Westminster in 1931, which settled that for, for all time. Canada was now an independent country. So for, for the conservatives, they go into the wilderness really for, for 20 years. You could argue even longer than that. You have a little blip with Diefenbaker in the 50s, you know, who harkens back to an older style of pro-empire conservatism. Uh, and they have to find a new way. Uh, to uh, to appeal to Canadians, and it takes them a long time to do it, and they reemerge as the progressive conservatives and and a, a kind of a new look. So that 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 is one change, and it also affects the Liberals, because as I mentioned, the Liberal vote in Western Canada is dropping. It doesn't start in 1935; it was already dropping. So you can't say that 1935 was particular, but it does sort of accelerate with 1935 with these new parties. The West is turning against. Their the, the conservative vote was dropping, but the liberal vote is dropping as well. Just you just don't notice it because the liberals won a lot of seats. Uh, and so for the liberals, there's a real challenge about Western Canada. Uh, and one thing they learned in 1935 with the dropping vote is that they didn't need the West anymore. Uh, in all, if you go back to Laurier's years and even back before that, uh, the liberals needed the West. They could win in Quebec, and they needed the West against the Conservatives who dominated in Ontario. Well, the Liberals uh, have a resurgence in Ontario, and they turn increasingly to uh, things like national unity uh, as the you know the basis of uh, liberal uh, platform and liberal power. And so you do see that it was already happening, but you do see it's accelerating. But they don't need the West anymore. The West doesn't like the Liberals, and they are turning away and learning to win, and they do win over and over again for the next, you know, four, de four decades, uh, based on winning in Quebec and Ontario. And the, the West is becoming an afterthought. And so you get sort of a, an alienation of Western Canada to liberals coming out of that election as well, which I think has continued on uh, to the present time. So it really does affect the two major parties. So David, on that note, uh, really like to thank you for joining me today and shedding light on really what was a fascinating 1935 Canadian general election. My guest today was David McKenzie. His book, King and Chaos, the 1935 Canadian general election, was published by UBC Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. You can also send us an email at info at 
This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on September the 19th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team, who also support the Champlain Society. Mm-hmm.